Now there were some present at that time who told you that whose blood Pilate had mixed with their voices. Jesus answered, Do you think Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you two will all perish, or those 18 who inside on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jesus? I tell you, no. But unless you will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard for fruit on it, but did not find it. Three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. It does use up the soil. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll get it fruit next year. Fine. If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching, and a woman was there eight years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. He called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are from your infirmity. And he put it up. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work. Come be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't eat on the an ox or donkey and lead it out to give it water? Should this prove Abraham, who scared for eight long years, be set free on the Sabbath day and bound her? When he said this, all his abuse humiliated. People were delighted with all the wonderful things he doing. So Jesus makes an unpopular command. Last week as we gathered together, we found that not only should we watch for his return, but we should be faithful workers for Christ while we wait for that return. This need for faithful service that we saw at the end of Luke chapter 12, now we begin Luke chapter 13, and what faithful service looks like begins to expand. Because our faithfulness is found when we are accurately able to answer three questions. The first question is in the first five verses of Luke 13, where we have to ask ourselves, are some sinners worse than others? See, I believe the people that Jesus was addressing were working under a couple of wrong assumptions. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus had chided those who misread current events. Jesus says, you see the clouds form in the west, you know what that means. You see this, the wind blow from the south, you know what that means, but you have no idea what's happening around you. And so they bring up some current events to say, no, we see what's going on. 
What does this mean? See, the problem in the first group of verses is that people had a wrong assumption. And sometimes when we come to God's word, we also have wrong assumptions. The first wrong assumption was they assumed that if they did not experience tragedy, then God must be okay with them. As long as I'm not experiencing the discipline of God, God must be okay with me. But if something negative were to happen, maybe then I need to have some concern about Is God approving of me or not? But Jesus tells them twice. He tells them in verse 3 and again in verse 5, something that is very, very unpopular. You've got it wrong. Jesus says, because you have it wrong, we need to bring about a change. And nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. But Jesus says, the most loving thing I can do is to correct your wrong assumptions. To allow you to continue on thinking you're okay with God and God is okay with you when you're not would do them no good. Jesus basically says in verses 3 and 5, you better get right or you will get left. See, the second assumption is that there were some present who thought they could trick Jesus into saying something against Pilate. Because if Jesus were to say something negative about the Roman government, the Roman government would step in and they would deal with what they thought was their problem. For they had seen Pilate kill these Galileans who had come to offer sacrifices. So they knew that Pilate was aggressive and that he was mean, and so they assumed, hmm, if we can set up Jesus, Jesus will say something, and the Romans will deal with Jesus, problem solved. Now, allow me to try and fill in some of the gaps of the stories that are here in front of us. Because Jesus was speaking within an environment where there were current events that were happening, And Jesus is trying to bring some sense to these current events. In verses 1 through 3, we read about Galilean blood being mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know the specifics of this massacre, so we don't know exactly how many people that it involved. However, we do know that Pilate had many conflicts with Jewish pilgrims that he frequently squelched by force. As tourists would come to Jerusalem during the feasts, Pilate would be there to remind them, Hey, hey, y'all, remember, I'm in charge. And if there were any kind of a revolt or an uprising or a demonstration... Pilate would act in such a way to remind them, hey, I'm in charge here. You're under my rule. And apparently there were some who came from Galilee, which was outside of Pilate's governing. 
But they came to Jerusalem that was within his area of governing. So he says, I don't care where you come from. When you come to my town, you will follow my rules. And so apparently, during this journey, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, some of them were killed for their uprising. And metaphorically, the blood of those who were killed was mixed with the sacrifices that they came to offer. And so those who came for a noble purpose, the purpose of their blood was spilt. And just as our news in the last few years has been filled with demonstrators of various causes who were arrested and detained, these in verse 1... It kind of speaks of their demonstrators. These are the ones who got caught by Pilate and were executed or injured by his soldiers. And so Jesus asked those who were listening to him, do you think those who got punished for coming to Jerusalem are any worse than any of the others coming from Judea or Galilee who had come for the festival? Are these somehow worse because they got caught by the government? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. All y'alls need to repent. He concludes that all, whether they got caught or not, anyone who lacks in biblical repentance will perish. Now, as I speak about repent, perhaps some words of clarification are important. Because there are biblical ideas of what it means to repent, of what it means to confess, that are very different from some of our interactions. I heard a preacher on the radio this morning as I was getting ready for service say that repentance or confession is different than an apology. Or an admission. See, there are times where we admit that we did something wrong. There may be times that we apologize because we don't like the consequences of being caught when we were wrong. But more than an admission or a confession, the idea, or more than an admission or an apology, the idea of a confession or repentance. Is to say, not only do I admit that I did wrong, not only am I sorry that I did wrong, but I agree with God in the wrongness of what I did. Confess means to say along with. I say the same thing that God says about the condition of my sin, about the seriousness of my sin. And when I confess When I agree with God, I've had a change in my mind. Not only did I do it, not only am I sorry, but I realize I've had a change in my mind of how serious this really is. I like the idea where it says that um, to, the idea of biblical repentance is more than being sorry for our sins. It's being sorry enough to quit. It's more than being emotionally upset for sin. It's being sorry enough to make some changes. I've concluded that the word repent, as it relates to to the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
is to have a genuine change of mind about the seriousness of sin so that our behavior changes. It's not primarily about the behavior change. We don't clean ourselves up so that God will somehow love us. We don't clean ourselves up so that God will somehow accept us. But when we have a change of mind about how serious our sin is, we are willing to turn, and then He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There's a second story that Jesus has to correct the misconception. It's a story about a, a, a tower tragedy. Again, we don't have a historical record. There's nowhere else in archaeology that it, it speaks of this collapse of some tower. So we're left to kind of put together the pieces that we have and, and glue them together with a little, de, a little bit of deduction. I believe that since Jesus specifically quantifies the number of victims, that he's not just telling a, a made-up story. I presume this was an actual event that would have been fresh in the memory of his contemporary audience. When he says, remember that tower that fell that killed 18 people? They knew exactly what he was talking about. This Tower of Siloam, the Lexham Bible Dictionary describes as being on the western slope of Mount Zion. It may have been located where the village that is now called, called Silwan or Kefir Silwan. So if you ever go to the Holy Land and your, your travel guide takes you through Kefir Silwan, that's where this Tower of Siloam once stood. You look back to the book of Nehemiah, it mentions a projecting tower in connection with a region known as Ophel. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 26 speaks of this tower in Ophel, which was in the area that we now know as Siloam. Well, just as there was speculation about God's judgment getting connected with climate events, remember when there were... Um, uh, floods in New Orleans. And people said, if there are floods in New Orleans, that must be because God is judging the people of that community, correct? And that was one of the theories, that there was a, a natural event, and so God must be judging. Or the tidal wave that was in Indonesia. Some said, well, God must be judging them for some reason. Well, just as we make those, or some of us, make those connections in our cataclysmic events... The people that were listening to Jesus concluded, eh, if there was a construction accident, I bet God was behind it, and God was judging those employees for some reason and for some purpose. But Jesus says just because those 18 construction workers died in the tower, he says that doesn't make their sins any worse than your sins. Jesus says, it's not that they were being judged because their sins are worse. Jesus says, no, I, I tell you, all y'alls need to repent. And so to this understanding that all are in need of repentance, I'm here to tell you, I needed to repent. And there are people sitting next to you who needed to repent. 
It's not that you're worse than we are or that we're better than you are. Because all must have that change of mind that leads to a change of action. Or perishing is a consequence. Yet to this uh, understanding that all are in need of repentance, Jesus then turns his attention to our attitude toward other sinners. Because some of us may be tempted to think, well, some of those sinners are just beyond any help. We read a story in verses 6 through 9 about fruitless trees. And and, and I kind of see the picture here. Jesus says that there was a, a certain tree... And the owner waited for three years and was never able to get fruit off of that tree. And so the employee who was responsible for taking care of the trees says, I tell you what, boss, give us one more year. Let me add a little bit of something. We'll change the situation a little bit and we'll see if fruit happens within the next year. If not, go ahead and cut it down. And I believe that this is historically talking about Jesus' earthly ministry. For Jesus ministered for about three years, and the Jewish people, by and large, would not accept him as the Messiah. They did not realize that he was God in the flesh that was coming to introduce to a new kingdom. The the, the children of Israel, the, the Jewish nation, was fruitless, by and large. For the three years that Jesus preached, he did miracles, he did healings, he did feedings, but they refused to acknowledge who he really was. However, give him one more year. Because after the crucifixion and resurrection, what happens in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Peter preaches and 3,000 souls were added that day. So the people who refused to acknowledge for three years after the resurrection in the first year, all of a sudden fruit is appearing everywhere as the Jewish people were accepting Christ. You know, interesting enough, there's a story that's recorded in Matthew chapter 21 and in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus is the one who does not find fruit on the tree and Jesus says, hey, if this tree's not going to produce fruit, cursed be that tree. And here we see a parable of a vineyard owner and a vine dresser. This vine dresser is the, the faithful workers that we saw this last week. These vine dressers are you and me. And interesting enough, this is not the first time that the Bible has mentioned waiting three years for fruit. For we see in Leviticus chapter 19, God told his people, when you come into the land and you plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden three years. The fruit shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And I believe this Leviticus 19 was a prophecy of Jesus coming when the Jewish people would not receive him. See, God knew the Israelites, as he knows us, that we tend to get impatient. And so he told the Israelites, even when you go into the new land, you plant your new plants, you wait 
Because after three years, good things are going to happen. But Jesus knew that his people, just as he knows we, you and me, we tend to get impatient. I want change right now. When I see people that are mistreating me, I want them to improve yesterday. I'm not willing to wait for them. You know, we get frustrated when we read that we may need to forgive somebody, not seven times, but we need to be patient enough to forgive somebody 70 times 70 when they mistreat us. But I see the the vine dresser here is is asking the the owner of the vineyard, please be patient. Don't give up on them yet. And there are people that you may be um, praying for and that you may be crying for, and you're asking God, don't give up on them yet. See, God knew that they were impatient. And sometimes we get impatient with the people who are around us. Doctors Cloud and Townsend have sold over 2 million copies of this book that was revised four years ago. I've read this book, I've taught this book, and I believe there is some very good information in this book on boundaries. However, I'm concerned when I see people shutting others out in the name of self-love or protecting myself. This idea of boundaries is a positive message, but there are people that I have seen shut out others because, after all, I need to love myself. I need to care for myself first, and so I can't allow that toxicity in my life. In our Sunday School Fellowship Hall class, we spoke this morning about those who try to silence others. If they have a message that I don't want to hear, then some say nobody ought to hear that message. And we do it under the name of boundaries. But if we are erecting boundaries between others and us, it is absolutely imperative that we don't do that in a way that would lessen God's work in our lives. Yes, there are painful people in our lives. But God just might be trying to do something in your heart through that hard-to-live-with person. Or God may wish to use you to bring that person to himself. So we need to be cautious in setting up boundaries that keep us from being involved in what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of others. You know, it is wise for us to be cautious in the way that we erect those barriers. Even if it is sometimes necessary, listen to me clearly, it is sometimes necessary in situations of abuse, or predatory behaviors, sometimes setting up those boundaries is absolutely essential and absolutely just. For just as we don't have the right to deny the image of God in another person, there's no other person on earth who has the right to deny that you bear the image of God else also. 
And so if there's someone who diminishes, belittles, harasses, abuses you, sometimes boundaries are the absolutely best and appropriate response. But we ought to always do that in such a way that I still pray that God works in that person's life. I I think in the next verse, we actually read a a very timely lesson. And the timely lesson is that God is not giving up. One commentator writes, as with many parables, it's, it's unwise for us to press the details to the point of, of all the correspondence. It's better for us simply to see this story as the whole, as enforcing Jesus' call for repentance. Jesus calls all to repentance, but there is a limit to God's patience with those who reject his grace. That's why he says, we've waited three years, let's give it one more year, then if there's still no more fruit, go ahead and take down the plant. That there is a limit to what God is doing. Because we do read in Psalm 103 that the Lord is merciful, the Lord is gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in his steadfast love. But we also see in Psalm 7 that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. We pray for change. We pray for repentance. But whether we're talking about you or we're talking about those people that are hard to live with, there is a deadline on God's mercy. Because Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, just it is appointed for man to die once, And after that, there will be judgment. And so as we deal with people and we know that God has a deadline, sometimes we have to ask, are there limits to my helpfulness? Can I really make a difference? What does God expect of me in regards to that person? Because sometimes we, like the religious leader, wants to excuse our bad behavior. See, in in the last section, we saw a vine dresser who was willing to do anything to save his precious plant. He would do anything possible to save one of his plants. But then here, beginning in verse 10... We find a religious leader who was looking to do as little as possible to help another person in distress. He says, after all, let let him come on any of the other days of the week. Why, Why should she be allowed to mess up my church service? Now, I must admit my own struggles in in this regard. You can imagine that as a a pastor, I get requests for all sorts of assistance, usually money, bills that need to be paid. 
And, and I never quite understand how some people who would never think of attending a Bible study or a worship service, not to mention ever making a donation to a church, somehow these same people believe that when I need money, the church has money to give away. The church somehow doles out money like a vending machine when I need it. I wonder where these people think the money comes from that churches distribute. And and, and I confess to you that my default mode in most of these situations is to question, well, what did you do with the resources that you have? What did you do with your opportunities? How did you squander the resources that God gave to you? Sometimes I'm just like this religious leader that Jesus calls the hypocrite. I I was exposed many years ago by an economist to consider this book by uh, Steve Corbett and Brian Feichert. When helping hurts. That sometimes paying that person's bill may not be doing them any good. See, the situation where I was challenged to think about when helping actually might hurt the other person, I I mentioned that there was an initiative by a certain teen who was motivated to get people to collect their loose change, and they would send that change to a certain organization that would use that money to buy slaves out of trafficking. I thought, well, that seems like a good cause. Let's use my loose change to get people out of slavery. But I was challenged with the idea in this book and that this member of my church pointed to me is that if you pay the trafficker to buy that person's liberty, they're going to just keep on trafficking because there's money to be made. And so sometimes, by buying this person's liberty, you create a system that continues to be awful. Now, I've been asked to help some people with utility bills. When I press in, though, I usually find that if I were to pay this electric bill, there's absolutely nothing that's going to keep you from three months from now being right back trying to avoid a shutoff. See, sometimes... Our helping hurts. But we actually ought to have the compassion to deal with the underlying situation. See, the religious leader saw a woman who was doubled over and he says, eh, let her come back tomorrow. Jesus sees her and says, let me loose this situation and deal with it once forever so that she would be liberated from this oppression. I don't ever want to be an as little as possible. But I also, I don't want to simply put a band-aid on a cancer. Jesus doesn't offer a Tylenol to this woman who is bent over. He cures her 18-year affliction. And I want to be a partner with God that genuinely, whenever possible, sets captives free with true help. Now, I know for a fact that Ann and I are not alone in this quandary. 
Anne's medicine cabinet has bottles and syringes that help relieve the side effects of chemotherapy. And I have had personal conversations with some of you who are in this room right now who are seeking answers to the effects of natural and pharmaceutical compounds that influence, you know, what's the short-term relief? What's the long-term prognosis? What, what happens if I do this treatment? What happens if I don't do that treatment? Is it worth it to go through this pain for a possible relief on the other end? And we ask, when do we say enough is enough? But Jesus doesn't just put a band-aid on the situation. Jesus wants to change the root cause. And this woman who had been doubled over for 18 years, Jesus truly and genuinely and authentically releases her from the underlying oppression of that bent-over condition. And I trust that your desire is not to be like the religious leader who is unnecessarily callous. Let her come back when it's more convenient. I trust that your heart is to be like Jesus that wants to offer true compassion that meets real needs. You know, I told you earlier that the people that Jesus was speaking with had some wrong assumptions. Well, apparently they still have some wrong assumptions. But these are wrong assumptions for the religious leader. And the first wrong assumption is this. A miracle is not a work of man. Jesus says she shouldn't be healed because work isn't allowed on Sunday. And Jesus says a miracle of God is not a work of man. See, Jesus did no more to work on that lady than to simply touch her. And I've seen people in many places in the world who feel like we can move the hand of God by the extent to which we get worked up over a situation. If I worry about it enough, then God is going to do something. If I pray fervently enough, then God is going to do something. And somehow we connect our works of man with the miracle of God. But Jesus says, we don't need to get worked up and to get into a lather. The work of the the miracle of God is not the work of man. It, it seems to me that the, the interaction between our faith and the move of God is not our great faith in a little God. But it is our little faith, a mustard seed of faith in a more than capable God. God doesn't need our mighty works. Our mighty God needs to work. And that's what happens in the situation of this woman. The second wrong assumption that this religious leader makes is that my livestock is more important than a human being. Now, I've already confessed to you my shortcoming in extending mercy to those in distress. I'll also confess to you that I'm in the group of people who may cry more over a deceased pet than a relative who passes. Now, part of that becomes, because the pet is over, the soul of the person continues. But sometimes we treat our pets better than other humans, do we not? But Jesus sees this woman in distress 
And it says to the religious leader, you can't ignore her distress. She's more important than your herd, your livestock. And if you do a, a normal thing in an emergency condition for your cow, you'd, you'd untie it so it could get to the well. Why would I not take this woman who bears the image of God and release her from her stress? See, we've looked at three kind of interrelated stories in these 17 verses today. And, and let me tie it all together with one common thread of repentance. As your pastor, I desire to be gentle, but I also feel like I need to be clear when the words of Scripture are corrective. And one of those words of Scripture is, unless you repent, you will perish. I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to belittle you. I say that because I want you to avoid perishing. Scripture tells us that we all need to repent. And I trust that you have come to that point in your life where you've had that change of mind regarding the seriousness of sin. That you've been willing to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ in the ability to do what pleases God. This repentance, once we have experienced it, we then have the privilege of helping others to come to repentance. We saw the compassion of someone who was patiently working with the goal of seeing someone else to become fruitful. And I wonder, is there someone that God has laid on your heart that God says, I want you to bring them to repentance, to fruitfulness? like the vine dresser. And finally, when God calls us to faithfully bring others to repentance, we are called to extend and to expand our compassion. Rather than stingily looking for excuses, ah, come back tomorrow and then I'll see if I have any time for you. Come back when it's more convenient like the religious leader in verses 10 through 17. We can't ignore the pain of others. So my friends, it's simply this. Have you repented? And who is God using you to bring to repentance? Our final 